During the American Civil War, great drama was not exclusive to just the battlefield. There were many instances when what took place behind the lines or behind enemy lines was just as engaging and significant. Those instances bring life to the men and women who operated in the shadows, who dared to infiltrate and risk all in the process. These are the stories of selected spies, raiders, and military analysts. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. The president-elect left Springfield, Illinois for a 12-day, five-state trip. Destination, Washington City, an eventual inauguration. On February the 22nd, 1861, however, Abraham Lincoln stood before Independence Hall in Philadelphia and delivered a speech. His appearance and oration belied concern. However, the evening before, he had been warned by an agent that his life was in danger. Federal agent Harry Davies, alias Joe Howard of Louisiana, infiltrated a group known as the Blood Tubs and reported they were going to assassinate the president when he switched from one train to another in Baltimore. Within, the assassin was selected by drawing a straw with a red end. Little did the members know that eight had been reddened to increase the chances for success. The attack was to come as the horse-drawn train car was being pulled from the Calvert Street Station to the Camden Street Station. En route, the blood tubs would create a disturbance, and with attention diverted, the appointed assassins would strike. Their leader, Italian barber Captain Cipriano Ferrandini, boasted, In a week from today, the North shall want another president, for Lincoln will be a corpse. Agent Davies' warning was reinforced when a Congressional Investigating Committee reported much of the same details to Lincoln. With two alerts from separate sources, Lincoln agreed to leave Philadelphia the night of the 22nd, earlier than scheduled. To cover his departure, all the telegraph lines from Harrisburg to Philadelphia were cut. For increased security, an agent was planted on the rear platform of the presidential train as it sped through the night. Over 200 security guards and other agents stood guard at every bridge and crossing where a raised lantern at each meant all was well. They arrived in Baltimore at 3.30 in the morning. The transfer through the city went without incident, and at 6 a.m., Abraham Lincoln unceremoniously, but safely, entered Washington City. Upon arrival, he announced, Well, boys, thank God this prayer meeting is over. The would-be assassins in Baltimore were left frustrated and skipped town. In late April of 1861, Lincoln called the mastermind of those agents to Washington City and asked him to form a government secret service. It was not the first time this nation, while at war, called for such an organization. 
George Washington advanced $17,000 of his own money to finance espionage and counter-espionage. Nathan Hale was one who got caught in that network created by the commanding general of the Continental Army. Although there was little activity in the War of 1812, during the Mexican War, activity increased. For example, Major General Winfield Scott hired Manuel Dominguez, a Mexican national and highwayman, to recruit countrymen to work for the Americans. Scott referred to them as his spy company. Then, spying and intelligence gathering was nothing like the intrigue and technology of today. There was no intelligence staff, no trained espionage corps. Like the non-professional volunteer soldier, spying was done by amateurs. Quite honestly, many believe spying dishonorable. Perhaps, yes, but during the Civil War, it certainly was made easier, for each side spoke the same language, practiced a similar moral code, and possessed a mutual history. All knew the geography. The skills required were daring, bravery, resourcefulness, and luck. Yet getting the info was one thing, channeling it was another. And even in proper hands, analyzing and interpreting it were entirely different matters. And at an even higher level, someone had to devise a strategic or tactical plan based upon the analysis. The North's first attempt at such an organization came from the man who saved Lincoln from assassination, Alan Pinkerton. Born in Glasgow, he was the 10-year-old son of a police sergeant who was crippled by injuries sustained in a workers' riot. As an adult, Alan Pinkerton went on to become a barrel maker's apprentice. Eventually, he moved to Dundee, Illinois, a place where Scots had settled, and made a village on the Fox River. There, the young Pinkerton became a barrel maker. Once while cutting wood along the Fox River, he spotted a hideout which sheltered counterfeiters. He led a group back to the site and helped to nab the whole bunch. The experience was exhilarating, and in reward, in 1846, he found himself deputy sheriff for his home county. Not long after, he became sheriff of Cook County. And later, he served on the first detective force sponsored by the Chicago police. In 1850, Pinkerton started his own detective agency specializing in railroad security. It was he who learned of the Blood Tubs plot. Within that group, it was he who planted Agent Harry Davies, who, as we mentioned earlier, used the alias Joe Howard from Louisiana. Pinkerton even met the group's leader, Captain Ferrandini, and assured of their serious intent, personally carried the news of the plot to Lincoln the night before his Independence Hall speech in Philadelphia. Though he was enticed to aid the president in his creation of a secret service, the timing wasn't right. So he returned to Chicago, where he was then contacted by a former chief engineer of the Illinois Central and former president of the Ohio and Mississippi Railroad, George Brenton McClellan. On July the 27th, 1861, Alan Pinkerton arrived in Washington City as a member of McClellan's staff. The Scot was asked to gather info about the enemy, and while in Washington City, he was to 
test all suspected persons. One prime suspect was Betty Duval, who dressed as a country girl and at the reins of a farm cart left Washington City and on the 10th of July stood before Confederate Brigadier General Millage L. Bonham at Fairfax Courthouse. There, she took out a tucking comb which allowed her long hair to tumble. From the back of her head, in the midst of her thick hair, she extracted a small package the size of a silver dollar, which was sewed up in silk. Inside, a message. Intel, which allowed Confederate forces a chance to prepare for what would become the Battle of First Manassas. It read, McDowell has certainly been ordered to advance on the 16th. R-O-G. Those initials belong to Washington City's Rose O'Neill Greenhouse. At 44 years of age, Greenhow had eyes dark and sleepy. She had a full figure and possessed a magnetic personality. Born in Maryland, she moved to the Capitol to live with an aunt at the old Capitol building boarding house where several congressmen lived. There she met and absolutely adored South Carolina Senator John C. Calhoun, and that relationship sealed her loyalty to the South. At 26 years of age, she married Dr. Robert Greenhow, who was 17 years her senior. He died in 1854, leaving her and four daughters. Freed from Victorian code as a married lady, she sought the company of powerful men and used those personal and political friendships to get jobs and promotions. Her unbelievable network included the likes of Secretary of War and later Mississippi Senator Jefferson Davis, Oregon Senator Joseph Lane, and New York Senator William Seward. Eyebrows were raised when Bachelor President James Buchanan and Massachusetts Abolitionist Senator Henry Wilson, Chairman of the Senate Military Affairs Committee, called on her. Fully aware of her contacts and her ability to get men to talk, Confederate Captain Thomas Jordan enlisted her for Southern service. Jordan had been the West Point roommate of William Sherman and had served as assistant quartermaster of the War Department until he left the service May 21, 1861. When he departed the capital to go south, he left Greenhough as head of the Confederacy's first spy ring. As she put it, To this end I employed every capacity with which God had endowed me. Alan Pinkerton was impressed with her talent. He noted she had almost irresistible seductive powers. Those powers not only allowed her to learn the date of Major General Irwin McDowell's Union departure for Manassas in July of 1861, but its exact route. Some one month after the Union defeat, Pinkerton confronted her, and that prompted one of her four daughters, Little Rose, to climb a tree and begin shouting, Mama's been arrested! Mama's been arrested! Although she was not imprisoned, she was subject to constant, around-the-clock male surveillance. News of that enraged the South. Other suspected women were sent to her house and all confined to house arrest at what was called 
Fort Greenhow. All pent up together for some five months, the collection of women fomented a healthy dislike for one another. In January of 1862, all were removed to Old Capitol Prison. There, under federal surveillance, information still leaked south. So on the 2nd of June, 1862, the federal government threw up its hands and sent Greenhow south. Once there, Jefferson Davis decided to make use of her. On his direction, she ran the blockade and traveled to England and France, where she spent more than two years. In September of 1864, she decided to return to the States, and that meant running the Union blockade again. On the 30th of that month, she was on the blockade runner Condor, bound for Wilmington, North Carolina, when a Union blockade ship ran the Confederate vessel ashore. Convinced she was going to be captured, she begged the captain to be allowed to escape via a small boat. He agreed, but once in the water, that tiny vessel capsized, and with a sizable amount of gold on her person, she sank to the bottom of the Cape Fear River literally like a rock. Despite her work, she and her little band did not act alone. Another Confederate spy of notoriety was the so-called Cyrene of the Shenandoah, Bell Boyd. Born in 1843 in Martinsburg, Virginia, she was also known as the Rebel Joan of Arc, or the Secesh Cleopatra. She often served as a courier, running messages and medicine through the lines. One of the most well-known spies, in truth, she was also one of the least effective she concocted a story which had her, at 17 years of age, shooting a federal soldier who insulted her mother. She broadcast that it was she who, in the middle of the night, ran through enemy lines at Front Royal, Virginia, to appear before Stonewall Jackson, where she gave him information which sealed victory. There is some truth here, but her claims are weakened, for she repeatedly told others that she had a letter from Jackson who thanked her for her service. But no one ever actually saw it. Claims or not, she was arrested six times and imprisoned twice. Eventually, she was sent to Canada, where she married an officer of the crew that captured her. He was dishonorably discharged and died in prison as a Confederate spy. She married twice more. After the war, Belle Boyd took her stories from fact to fiction to the lecture circuit. In short, she certainly had no lack of brains, had a sense of self-marketing, and loved to the nth degree attention and publicity. Let's return to our Scotsman, Alan Pinkerton. Energetic and organized, his reports were detailed and included morale, supplies, and equipment, even down to the number of buttons. His failing, the propensity for overestimating enemy numbers. We'll never know the truth behind his work, for his records were destroyed in the Great Fire of Chicago in 1871. But we have some examples of his inflated estimates. In October of 1861, he had Joseph E. Johnston's Confederate force at 150,000, when in reality, Johnston had only 50,000. 
at Yorktown, Virginia. After reporting 119,000 rations, he had Confederate John Bankhead Magruder's army at 120,000. Magruder had fewer than 17,000. And yet, by the time Robert E. Lee initiated his seven days campaign in late June of 1862, Pinkerton was spot on when he correctly identified every Confederate unit. He reported Lee had 208 infantry units, nine cavalry, and 39 artillery batteries. Yet, despite those accurate numbers, he reported Lee's army at 180,000 when it only had 90,000. When McClellan was relieved in November of 1862, so too was he. Now, gathering info is one thing, but when you have it, how might it be relayed? Here's one enterprising Confederate who mastered a unique system, the wigwag. Georgian E.P. Alexander borrowed from former federal surgeon Albert J. Meyer, who would watch Comanche warriors sign with their lances. Meyer came up with a system and tested it successfully, sending signals over a distance of six miles, the first successful use of alphabetic communication in forward areas. Though sworn to secrecy, Alexander, of course, helped the Confederacy. He taught his comrades how to wag. Its first test in battle came from four towers at Manassas, while Alexander served as Beauregard's signal officer. It was his men who warned a Confederate brigade that its left had been turned. After the Confederate victory there, Alexander set up observation post on Mason's Hill, which put him only five miles from the Potomac River. From there, he could see Holmes and Mr. Lincoln's capital. Alexander sent an E. Pliny Bryan into the city who gathered information and let it be known he was ready to communicate by placing a coffee pot in a window. With Confederate eyes alerted, he then transmitted his intel by manipulating blinds in prearranged ways. Unfortunately, when Johnston's Confederate army pulled back from northern Virginia in early April of 1862, southern efforts at infiltrating and gathering information in Washington City dried up. Still, thanks to E.P. Alexander's efforts, the Confederacy soon thereafter officially designated a signal corps, and within it emerged a bureau that encouraged espionage. It was headed by a tidy, bearded man by the name of Major William Norris. He was the son of a Maryland hardware merchant and graduated from Yale. For a while, he practiced law in New Orleans. Then wanderlust grabbed hold of him, and off he went to California. At 40, he returned to Maryland, married, and fathered five children. Now, during the war, he headed this Confederate Secret Service Bureau, which included 10 captains, 20 lieutenants, 30 sergeants, and many enlisted men. His bureau secured northern newspapers and moved them through several channels, like, for example, through the doctor's line. Usually, he could get a Union newspaper within 24 hours of its publication. 
In August 1864, he set up a network and planned activities that would originate from Canada. One of his planned raids hoped to liberate some 10,000 Confederate prisoners held at the Union POW facility Camp Douglas near Chicago. After their mass escape, they were to storm the city and then disrupt the 1864 Chicago Democratic Convention. In addition to the prison population, Norris wanted to recruit 50,000 Copperheads, pro-Confederate Northerners, who would simultaneously demonstrate across northwestern states over a 10-day period. He wanted more than marches. He hoped they would seize state governments in Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. Camp Douglas Commandant Colonel Benjamin Sweet learned of Norris's plan after a recent addition to his prison population escaped. That escapee was a planted Union spy. Sweet not only unraveled the Confederate mission, but even had specific Copperhead leaders in Chicago arrested. If you thought Norris's plan to create havoc in Chicago and the Northwestern Union states was bold, let's move to a site some 15 miles south of the Canadian border, to the little village of St. Albans, Vermont. On October the 15th, 1864, 25 men, all under Confederate Lieutenant Bennett Young, began to stir. Divided into small groups for three days, they rode into town and performed reconnaissance. Four days later, on the 19th, at 3 p.m., the United Band rode in and Young announced to the startled citizenry, Gentlemen, I am a Confederate officer. I've come to take your town, and I'm going to do it. Citizens looked at one another and then broke into laughter. Confederate pistol shots and laughs were swallowed. The band of men immediately went for the banks. Three were robbed, the raiders riding off with over $200,000. One citizen was mortally wounded and scores of others injured. But among the panicked citizens of St. Alban's, Vermont, there was one federal cavalry officer who was home on leave and he organized townspeople. A half hour into the raid, the hastily organized militia scattered the raiders and began pursuit even into Canada. It was there that Young and 12 others were captured and sentenced. About $75,000 was recovered. Yes, a desperate Confederate measure, but then again, the Confederacy early on was desperate militarily and had to adopt desperate measures. Here's another Confederate raid that was launched from Canada. Its target? New York City. Using the hubbub surrounding Election Day 1864, six Southern agents hoped to burn the city to the ground. Each had ten bottles of flammable phosphorus known as Greek fire. Each was assigned three or four rooms in 19 hotels across the city and P.T. Barnum's Museum. Mattresses were piled. Linens were saturated with a flammable solution. But things didn't go as planned. Many of the planted fires did not take, and those that did were quickly doused. 
Copperhead assistance never materialized, and there was even a rumor that the chemist who compounded the combustibles intentionally made them defective. Five of the original six escaped the city by train. R.C. Kennedy was not so lucky. He was eventually captured and hanged for attempting to burn down Barnum's. It is interesting how commanding generals felt about espionage, raids, and the use of spies or agents. Robert E. Lee mistrusted scouts and discounted the Confederate Secret Service. However, U.S. Grant was a believer. It had been a tip which led to his successful occupation of Paducah, Kentucky, back in September of 1862. And after a surprise and near defeat at Shiloh, he wanted intel. His spy master was Brigadier General Granville M. Dodge. Born in Massachusetts, he was educated in Vermont and New Hampshire in military and civil engineering. Before the war, he surveyed for the Mississippi and Missouri Railroad and earned a nickname from admiring Native Americans, Level Eye. He raised funds for his covert operations by illegally selling confiscated southern cotton and paid his spies on degree of mission difficulty. He numbered his agents and refused to give anyone their real identities. To his agents, he suggested that while on a mission, an agent should reveal some harmless information so that the bait of his or her planted deceptive role might be more completely believed or accepted. Example, one of Dodge's best agents, Philip Henson, gave Confederate Lieutenant General Leonidas Polk insight on Union military schedules, and an appreciative Polk put him on the Confederate payroll for $500. So trusted was Henson by Polk that three other Confederate generals used his services. Henson passed harmless info along so he might win the trust of Confederate officers, one in particular, the defender of Vicksburg, Mississippi, John C. Pemberton. Henson and Dodge's work aided Grant's campaign and siege of Vicksburg. For example, Confederate sources spread the word that Joe Johnston's relief force, which was in Grant's rear, numbered 60,000 men. Through his operatives, Dodge verified the number was actually only 30,000. That greatly reduced number bolstered Grant's confidence to maintain his strangling squeeze on the Confederate citadel Vicksburg. And when Grant went east in March of 1864, he inherited another operative, Intelligence Chieftain George H. Sharp, who was one of the positive reforms that Major General Joseph Hooker had initiated when he served as the commander of the Union Army of the Potomac. Grant, George Gordon Meade, and Union armies in the East benefited greatly from one of Sharp's operatives, Samuel Ruth, who was a native Pennsylvanian who moved to Virginia in 1839 and who, during the war, just happened to be the Confederate superintendent of the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad. His intentional inefficiency was so great that he drew the ire and fire of Robert E. Lee, who repeatedly called for Ruth's dismissal.
an example of his mangled mismanagement. The Confederate quartermaster in Richmond asked Ruth to transport 400,000 pounds of tobacco to Hamilton's Crossing, which was near Fredericksburg, and which would then be traded for 95 tons of bacon, which had been smuggled illegally out of the North and valued at $380,000. On March the 5th, 1865, a Union Cavalry unit, informed of the transport by Superintendent Ruth, intercepted the train, seized the tobacco, took 400 prisoners, burned the depot along with 28 cars, and destroyed four bridges south of Fredericksburg, Virginia. Another federal burr under the Confederacy saddle was the tiny, bird-like, sharp-nosed, bright-blue-eyed Elizabeth Van Loo, who, though a Unionist, lived in the Confederacy's capital, Richmond. There, when seen in public, she was repeatedly seen mumbling to herself. People remembered she used vacant expressions and she dressed shabbily. Locals called her Crazy Bet, then on December the 12th, 1866, a startling revelation when someone found a long, rambling diary that had been buried outside her three-and-a-half-story mansion high atop Richmond's Church Hill. Her erratic behavior and dress? All planned ruses to cover the fact that she was a Union spy. As a young girl, Van Loo had been sent from Virginia to Philadelphia and returned as an abolitionist, enough so that she persuaded her widowed mother to free their nine slaves. Her beliefs led her to Civil War service. During the conflict, and under the noses of Confederate authorities in no less the southern capital, she carried medicine, food, and books to her boys, as she put it, Union POWs in Richmond's Libby Prison. Underlined words and passages from the books she brought were coded messages. That was discovered when after she died, someone found the cipher hidden in the back of her watch. It had been there for 40 years. At Libby Prison, Van Lu charmed the prison commandant, Lieutenant David H. Todd, half-brother to Mary Todd Lincoln. She helped to place operatives in various southern departments, even black household staff members in the Confederate White House. One such person was Mary Elizabeth Bowser, who possessed a photographic mind. With information obtained from Bowser and others, Van Lu set up a five-relay station which she used to pass intel to Grant while he besieged Petersburg some 25 miles to the south. So efficient was her system, and in such a timely manner, it was said she provided flowers for Grant's table, still fresh from her Richmond garden. When some Confederates learned her true colors in Richmond's final hours, she used the expected Union entry to admonish, I know you, and you, and you. General Grant will be in this city within the hour, and if this house is burned, your houses will be burned by noon. And Grant indeed visited her, and she was rewarded. 
When Richmond fell, she raised the first full United States flag over the fallen city. And later, President U.S. Grant named her postmistress of the city of Richmond. She served in that capacity from 1869 to 1877. Though postmistress, she lived isolated, despised, and died in abject poverty in 1900. She was laid to rest in Richmond in an unmarked grave, buried upright in her crowded family cemetery. Thanks to admirers from Boston, her monument reads, She risked everything that is dear to man, friends, fortune, comfort, health, life itself, all for the one absorbing desire of her heart, that slavery might be abolished and the Union preserved. From a femme fatale, if you will, to the story of a federal raider whose exploits took on a James Bondian-like adventure. James J. Andrews was a contraband trader and volunteer from an Ohio brigade serving in Tennessee. His daring plan? He wanted to seize a Confederate locomotive on the Western and Atlantic Railroad in Georgia race northward in it while burning bridges from Atlanta to Chattanooga. By doing so, he could isolate the Tennessee city and Confederate rail hub. In civvies, his men, 16 of them, gathered in Marietta, Georgia. On Saturday morning, April the 12th, 1862, they bought tickets and boarded the northbound general. At a breakfast stop at Big Shanty on the Western and Atlantic Line, they seized the 25-ton, eight-wheeler wood-burning engine. Its five-foot driving wheels meant it could do 60 miles per hour. Andrews and his men uncoupled all but three boxcars and sped away, intent on completing their mission. The General's Confederate conductor, William A. Fuller, however, would have nothing of that. He began an immediate chase, first on foot, then by pushcart, and then commandeered three successive engines. The Yona at Etowah Station, the William R. Smith at Kingston, and then the Texas at Adairsville. His pursuit in the Texas was backwards. The Union Raiders lost an hour when they had to take a sidetrack to miss unexpected southbound traffic. They dropped cross ties across the rails, uncoupled two boxcars at Rizaka, the last at Tunnel Hill. At Kingston, a Union raid that was to help them created such local panic that they themselves were delayed, and that meant the Confederate man Texas was now only minutes behind. Then... The Union Raiders ran out of luck, and they ran out of fuel. The eight-hour, 87-mile chase was over, and as one Union Raider put it, the boys let out like a flock of quail. All were captured within a week. Andrews and seven others selected at random were hanged. The rest went to prison until they were exchanged in March of 1863. Although this episode smacks of daring adventure and even inspired Buster Keaton's 1926 silent movie classic, The General, 
and Disney's The Great Locomotive Chase in 1956. Ian Fleming-like scenarios during the American Civil War were rare. Civil War espionage was almost always isolated, tedious, often mundane. The process of infiltration, scouting, interrogation. More times than not, gathered information did not lead to major consequences, but here is an instance where a prominent Union officer made excellent use of intelligence, and it led to one of the war's greatest decisions. As we mentioned earlier, back in January of 1863, the Federal Army of the Potomac went under the command of Major General Joseph Hooker. His six-month tenure was personally and militarily a most stormy one, including defeat at Chancellorsville. Yet, despite his many faults and vices, he did initiate an excellent all-source intelligence system. He created a Bureau of Military Intelligence with capable people in place and who, with their gathered intelligence, not only created a battle, but won it. It was June of 1863. On the 12th, Captain John McAtee interviewed two African Americans. Their interviews revealed that Lee and his army were headed north from the Rappahannock River on a 150-mile trek to cross the Potomac a second time during the war. This info jump-started Hooker's Army of the Potomac to cover Washington and compete in the race for Pennsylvania. If there had been no word, the Federals would have learned of Lee's move with the fall of Winchester, Virginia, five days later. As Lee marched, Sergeant Milton Klein and a few Union spies actually mingled with Lee's veterans for four days. They confirmed Lee's intent. Conversely, about this time, Confederate intelligence failed. To confuse Hooker, Confederates let it be known that Lee's rear was across the Potomac two days ahead of when it would actually cross. Now, Hooker fell for it, but it rather than help, it hurt Lee, for Hooker rushed his army across the Potomac. Meanwhile, at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, Brigadier General John Buford interrogated two Confederate prisoners. Their info corroborated a captured courier's report that Gettysburg was Lee's intent, not Chambersburg, some 25 miles to the west. That allowed the Army of the Potomac's new commander, George Gordon Meade, to concentrate. You see, Lee did not expect Federals at Gettysburg. On June the 30th, Confederate Brigadier General James Johnston Pettigrew tried to communicate that they were indeed there, but his immediate superiors, Harry Heath and A.P. Hill, discounted Pettigrew's report. On day two of the unexpected battle, the unexpected collision at Gettysburg, 1,360 Confederate prisoners were taken. That's when former Commander Joe Hooker's creation the Bureau of Military Intelligence, really earned its stripes. The head of the Bureau, 35-year-old New Yorker, we've mentioned him earlier, Colonel George Henry Sharp, former architect from Chicago and degree holder from Rutgers and law degree from Yale, and he went to work. 
with John C. Babcock, Lieutenant Frederick Manning, and Captain McEntee, they, after interrogating those Confederate prisoners captured July the 2nd, gathered their information and put an intelligence report together. Babcock authored their collective analysis, which revealed that Confederate prisoners had been taken from every brigade in Lee's entire army except four. And those four made up George Pickett's division, which had just arrived on the field. That crucial piece of intel was brought to a council of war held around midnight of the 2nd in Meade's headquarters, the Leicester House. Packed in a small room, George Gordon Meade sat at a little table with nine of his generals. On the table, crackers and a half pint of whiskey. Meade, who was ordered to take command only five days before the great battle began, had not eaten in two days. He was hungry, tired, and bore the weight of command of an army defending northern territory. After two days of desperate fighting, he had to make a decision. Retreat or stay? And if his army stayed, go on the offensive or remain on the defensive? Before he made this incredibly important decision, he wanted Colonel Sharp to present Babcock's intelligence report. Sharp dutifully reported that Lee had only a small body of unused cavalry. And then the clincher. That Confederate prisoners had been captured from every Confederate brigade except Pickett's, who again had just arrived. It was 2nd Corps Commander Major General Winfield Scott Hancock who immediately understood the impact of what had just been presented, that Lee had only four brigades that were fresh. Hancock blurted, General, we have got them nicked. George Gordon Meade, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, was now aware, thanks to intelligence, that there were only fifteen to 20,000 fresh Confederates, and he had some 58,000. He had a four-to-one advantage. Armed with that intelligence, nine generals reacted to fact, not speculation. All nine unanimously voted to remain on the field. All nine voted to stay on the defensive. Mentally and militarily reinforced, Meade stated, such, then, is the decision. It was an eventful one. For the next day, it made the picket Pettigrew Trimble charge a doomed one. Meade and his generals won the Battle of Gettysburg thanks in part to Joseph Hooker's creation, the Bureau of Military Intelligence. Its intelligence kept Meade at Gettysburg for the climactic third day. Had he retreated to the southeast, which he considered, Gettysburg would have been yet another drawn battle like Antietam. One more observation about gathering intelligence merits a repeat of something we mentioned early on. While Joseph Hooker was still in command, he had the ability to take a report and piece together a military campaign. He saw the big picture. He could create the right plan but he couldn't see it through. 
His scholarly successor, Mede, possessed great skill in assimilating and interpreting intelligence. And that's the final step in the process of gathering information. It's a delicate ballet. Spies and raiders acquire information. Analysts interpret what's gathered. Then officers must successfully apply all three aspects vital. Interpretation is a higher skill than acquisition. And application is even higher than interpretation. For success, all three levels must be mastered. At Gettysburg, the federal common soldier benefited from a more polished system and intuitive commanding general than those who fought at Antietam with Alan Pinkerton and George McClellan. A final note. In 1885, the United States War Department formally authorized the individual military services to organize their own intelligence service. It was a step, a small one, but an important one. A step to harness and organize the efforts of spies, raiders, and analysts to give commanding officers in the future the basis to confidently design campaigns and fight battles under circumstances that gave the backbone of their armies, the common soldier, a great chance to not only win, but survive to fight another day. When next we gather, we'll tell the story of one who figured prominently in the American Civil War. One that did not wear a uniform. One that had intimate access to a commander-in-chief. Next up, the compelling story of the First Lady, Mary Todd Lincoln. I hope you'll join us. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.